The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. President Trump's import tax on solar panels will cause flare-ups. India's leader embraces globalism at Davos, and will Spotify's direct listing cause others in the IPO pipeline to cut out investment banks? These are the topics we'll be discussing on this week's edition of The Views Room, a weekly conversation among Breaking Views columnists about the ups and downs of the world of finance. I'm Jennifer Saba, and with me in the studio is my co-host, Anthony Curry. Hello, Anthony. Hi, Jen. How are you doing? President Donald Trump slapped import tariffs on solar panels and washing machines to help boost his America First agenda. The problem is the move will likely hurt more people than it helps. Joining us to explain the machinations of U.S. trade is our colleague in Washington, Chris Bedore. Welcome, Chris. Hi, guys. Great to be here. Yeah, great. Well, so let's start with the basic question here. Why solar panels and washing machines? What is such a threat with these items. Yeah, I've got to say, just as, 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 as Jen was going through the intro, I started laughing. It's like, this, this is, you're talking about trade wars and you're talking about washing machines. I mean, it's, it's, it just sounds absurd. Yeah, it's certainly not the most intuitive pairing that you could possibly imagine. Um, I think, you know, part of it is not just the issues of the substance. What are these things? You know, washing machines, solar panels. It's also the process involved. So Trump is prosecuting this through what's called Section 201 of the 1974 Trade Act. Um, that seems really esoteric, but it's actually pretty important. It's one of the most, uh, one of the toughest trade measures that you could bring under U.S. law. Um, and it hasn't been invoked since the early 2000s. And there's a reason that previous presidents have not used this as a safeguarding me- mechanism for U.S. trade. And that is that it's very unilateral in measure. So what that means is that you don't have to prove, unlike in a usual anti-dumping case, you don't really have to prove that a country did something wrong. Um, you don't have to kind of point fingers. Uh, this is The bar is a little bit lower than that. Um, and for that reason, usually when these cases have gone to the WTO in the past, the WTO has slapped them down as saying that this doesn't really meet the threshold of what we require. And so that's... Okay, so, so Chris, l- let, me, let me interrupt you here. So basically what you're saying is this obscure act, a, a part of trade law, allows the U.S. or the U.S. president to say... We're going to tax this import, um, whereas it hadn't been taxed before. Yeah, that's right. And we're going to do it on grounds that are much less than previous administrations have done. So okay. The, okay. the issue with these two is essentially both both Whirlpool and Suniva, which is a solar company who filed the petitions, both of them were kind of arguing the same thing, which is that, okay, we've done anti-dumping in the past, whether it was against Samsung and LG in South Korea, or it was against solar manu- manufacturers in China. We've done that, and we slapped tariffs on them. And then what they did in both cases was they just shifted production to other countries. So for LG, Samsung, that was to China. For, uh, for Chinese solar makers, that was to Malaysia and a few other countries. And so what we need is something really broad, which is what the sexual 201 gives. And we don't necessarily mm-hmm. need it to point fingers. And we, you know, we just need to stop playing this game of whack-a-mole. So that was the argument that they brought for why they needed this special type of production. Okay, so basically what this allows then is that any solar panel that is going to be imported into the U.S. or an item or whatever it is, is going to be taxed no matter where it's coming from. Exactly. Okay, got it. 
But but again, it still it still begs the question of you. Know, why solar panels? Is it is it trying to send a message to China where there's a lot of cheap solar panels being made? Is it trying to send a message about you know we're going to protect coal? Um, although you know the, the jobs at risk from uh, from tariffs on solar industry are a lot higher than than in coal. So, what is the rationale behind you know solar, for example? Yeah, it's a great question. I, so. Part of it seems to be that they are trying to right a wrong of the past, a genuine wrong. I don't think anybody within the trade world really disagrees that China didn't play very fairly on solar, especially around you know 2010, 2011, 2012, that era. And it really did decimate the U.S. solar manufacturing capability to a large extent. So um, the petitioners, when they filed the petition, they noted that even as the solar industry has boomed, the U.S. market share has dropped from 21% to just somewhere around 11% in about four years or so, from 2012 to 2016. So, so Chris, that, that, that 11, 21% to 11%, that's just for manufacturing of solar panels, right? It's nothing to do with the rest of the industry. Yeah, that's right. That's that's just for manufacturing. And manufacturing is just a tiny kind of slice of the overall solar industry. But, I mean, to your point, I think the reason that they were going after solar was because that this was, nobody disagreed that this was a genuinely bad thing that the Chinese had done. Even the EU agreed to that when they slapped anti-dumping duties on them as well. So what the administration appears to be doing is saying, okay, you know, China did something bad in the past. The previous administration didn't really take as forceful action as we would have hoped that they would have. Uh, so we're going to kind of address that, that trade wrong right now. And that's why we're going after it. All right. But, the, but in the interim, so you were mentioning sort of 2010-ish, 2011-ish. Since 2010, installation costs in the U.S. have gone down 70%, according to a, an admittedly a solar trade group. Um, although they ticked up slightly last year as fears of this these tariffs hit. And, you know, we've now got far more jobs, as you were saying, from installation uh, and sales and marketing than we do from manufacturing, which is like 15%. I looked at uh, just what's happening with um, first solar shares. They went up 7%, 8% as this news hit. And then they ended the day on Tuesday when this broke actually lower than um, where they closed the day before. So it almost seems already that people are getting the, the, the joke that, you know, this is going to hurt the industry far more than it's going to help them. Yeah, I, no, I think that's right. I mean, taken on the whole. Um, so manufacturing for solar cells and panels probably only accounts for about 2,000-ish jobs out of about 260,000 in the entire solar industry. And that's because that uh, you know, whereas in the past, U.S. solar panel and cell manufacturing might have had a sort of promising future, the reality is that uh, Chinese solar panel makers now dominate the industry. And in the U.S., we've now moved on to essentially exploiting the fact that solar panel costs are coming down. So most of the jobs, somewhere around 53 percent, are actually in installation or they're in sales and distribution and so forth. And so when you slap uh, a tax essentially on these solar panels that are coming in, uh, yes, you benefit kind of that tiny slice of manufacturers, um, but nobody really thinks that solar panel manufacturing is coming back in a big way to the U.S., and more to the point, you really damage pretty much everybody else in the industry, which benefits from low prices uh, for consumers and boosting demand there. So uh, it's really... I. I you know, I wrote in the view that I thought it was misguided. Um, not to say that uh, 
the manufacturers don't have a, a point to make. But uh, I mean, overall, I, I don't think there's any question that for the industry as a whole, this is probably not great news. Right, and, and we mustn't forget washing machines <laughs> before you go. Um, you know, I mean, I, look, I mean, okay, I admit I'm biased. My washing machine probably needs replacing. I'm now getting scared. It's going to cost me a bundle. Um, what is wrong with washing machines? Well, the, the issue is pretty much the same as with solar, which was that uh, Whirlpool essentially accused South Korean manufacturers of dumping. Um, the U.S. government um, basically gave a nod to that, and then they alleged that production simply moved to third countries instead. Um, so the there is a, probably a stronger case to be made in defense of Whirlpool than probably a bunch of the solar manufacturers. Um, but here again, it's kind of a it's kind of a tricky thing. So uh, LG and Samsung had both said that they're going to you know create plants in the U.S. to produce washing machines that would create jobs um, that would boost incomes presumably. So it's it's kind of a complicated give and take. Um, but I think the th the thing that links both of them thematically is you know as I was uh, saying in the view, um, the administration at least some in the administration, seem to have this idea of the U.S. manufacturing circa 2012 or 2011. And note that there was a genuine wrong done then and that, well, we can just kind of manually readjust all the settings to make it back to where it was in 2012. But the issue is that life has kind of moved on. And uh, now people on both sides, both producers and consumers in the U.S., sometimes have quite a bit to lose, um, both in terms of uh, you know, solars and to a certain extent um, manufacturers of, of washing machines. And so just going back in time really isn't as easy as it might seem on paper. Well, I've got to admit, I, you know, it, it's almost refreshing to know we've only gone back six or seven years. I, I'd rather have the impression in the past year that we've gone back to the 1950s. So, you know, things aren't as bad as they seem, maybe. All right, well, look, Chris, thanks for that. We'll let you go. And I'm sure we'll be talking to you more about this and many other topics out of DC in the coming weeks. Thanks again. Thanks for having me, guys. The World Economic Forum, better known as Davos, is in full swing. And joining us from the Swiss resort is our colleague, Yuna Galani. Yuna, welcome back to the program. Hello from Snowy Devil. So, Yuna, you just came back from hearing speeches from the Prime Minister of India and also the Chancellor of Germany. Why don't you tell us what that was like? Yeah, thanks, Jen. Well, you know, like, as you know, I'm normally based in Mumbai, so I was really, really excited uh, about Modi's speech. Um, you know, Modi was the first Indian head of state to address the summit in two decades, and he's normally a brilliant orator, and India has a really good story to sell to the world at the moment, given the really big structural reforms that the government has pushed through on everything from tax to fighting crony capitalism and corruption. But, you know, the speech was just, you know, frankly, it was 20 minutes too long. It was unfocused. Huh. He talked about everything from climate change to terrorism to globalization. You know, I mean, but two, two, two main messages did come through, which was that India is open for business and that the world has to work together to avoid things like or what he called reverse globalization. Um, and, uh, you know, he also actually did find time to take a tiny swipe at uh, Donald Trump. You know, he was arguing that it's really unnecessary to build walls. Um, and, yeah, you're right. Like, we had another speech from um, today from the German Chancellor, Angela Merkel. And she basically told the World Economic Forum that 
isolationism and protectionism, you know, they're not the, the solutions that we need to the economic challenges that are facing the world today. I mean, she, she sort of, but she was also predictable and a little bit disappointing because, you know, she said, you know, she was open-minded about the kind of partnership the European Union would develop with Britain after Brexit. There was just nothing really surprising there at all. So let's see what Francis Macron says. He fits, uh, you know, whether he fits into the trend of being boring and disappointing. <laughs> um, but at least we know that Donald Trump, who is due to speak on Friday, will not be boring. Yeah, or, and, and chances are, won't. I mean, I'm guessing, probably won't embrace the globalization message that, you know, many leaders of the world countries have have been coming to Davos to express? Look, absolutely not. I mean, it's really unlikely that he's decided that, you know, in the space of a week that he's going to suddenly drop the America First agenda and come here and be all conciliatory. Let's let's face it, Donald Trump has probably woken up and said, you know, I'm going to go, even though probably everybody, all of my advisors have told me not to go, I'm going to go and I'm going to tell them that I am right and that they are wrong. Yeah. Well, of course, Steve Mnuchin, his Treasury Secretary, is already over there and saying, uh, well, you know, uh, there's nothing wrong with, with international trade as long as it's bilateral and then it works for us. So, you know, Trump can push his, you know, we love trade, but as long as we win, which which is great if you've got the upper hand. But I mean, we're going to talk about tariffs in a minute with, with, with one of our other colleagues. But, you know, it doesn't it's not as simple as he makes out. But let, let's go back to, to, to Modi, because um, I'm interested in what you're saying, that he, he's normally a very good orator. But this one struck you as too long, boring and meandering, which which arguably almost sums up Davos for many people. Um, <laughs> but but why is what, what is it you think? Why is it you think he went that way as opposed to uh, what you might have expected? I think, you know, I think that there's probably two issues. I think one is he was, he might have been trying to deliver a, a speech that was um, played well at home as well as overseas. I think possibly he just, you know, mis, misread the audience he was and the caliber of the audience he was delivering to. I think that that's potentially a problem. Uh, but, I, you know, like, I, I, I don't really have a good answer for that. Okay, so so you know, let, let's take this back to just the conference itself. What's the vibe like? Well, you know, I mean, it's it's the whole conference got got started in a kind of quite difficult fashion. I mean, people had epic journeys to get here this year, with you know many of the kind of most rich and powerful people who would normally get up in a here in a thirty-minute helicopter ride, you know, stuck on the roads for up to like between five and eight hours, you know, just driving up the side of the mountain on treacherous roads. I mean, but let's face it, these are first-world problems. <laughs> right. Uh, in in terms of themes, I mean, you know, there's been a lot of chatter this year about populism and the need for a redistribution of wealth. Gender is also a big theme. This is the first time the summit is being chaired entirely by women and, and gender has been a high like a theme for high level panel discussions and parties. I'm about to go to uh, a, re- a cocktail reception hosted by uh, JP Morgan where invitees are in- asked to bring a woman or a male advocate for women. So mm. I think that's all part of the overhang of the you know the me too movement and how many women um, do you see uh at the conference actually so so well the official so of official registered delegates uh 21 percent this year are female but there are a lot more women sort of just wandering around town because bear in mind a lot of people come to davos with big entourages 
a lot of those people don't necessarily have the right passes to go into the conference center and some of the select hotels themselves. Mm. But there is, you know, around town you see a lot of women, but often you go to the parties and the receptions in the evening. They're very much male and um, white male-dominated mm-hmm. rooms. That's exactly how I would picture it. Well, Yuna, thank you very much for coming on the show. We appreciate I, it. You know, I, do, I, I think I want to say just one more thing. Sure, um, go ahead. You know, uh, you know Everyone this year is, is, is really, really bullish about the global economy. The U- U.S., Europe, and Asian economies are all looking really strong at the same time. And uh, you know, people are worried about geopolitical risks rather than financial and economic ones. But you know, maybe that's exactly why we should be worried. I mean, two years ago, if you remember, people thought China was going to have like, this really hard landing. You know, everyone was worried about debt. And they were wrong. It never happened. You know, one year ago, people thought it was going to be a terrible year in the markets. And they were wrong. It's been, you know, like an incredible year for markets and asset prices. And, and this year, uh, everybody seems to be quite positive. So that's beginning to emerge as a, a bit of a red flag of sorts. Maybe it's time to kind of, you know, ch- change track a bit. Hmm. So it's, right. it's almost like it's like the, you know, you got the, the, the Davos metric, you know, whatever comes up at Davos, you should bet against. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You've got to be the contrarian. (laughs) All right. Well, Yuna, thank you again so much for coming on. We appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Spotify is gearing up for one of the most anticipated public offerings this year. What's unusual, though, is that the music streaming service is going to offer shares directly to the public and bypass the typical underwriting process. And that will cut out, at least in part, the investment banks. Is this a trend that will stick? We have Breaking News columnist Liam Proud on the horn in London to walk us through it. Hey, Liam, thanks for joining us. No problem, my Anthony. So um, tell us, so what's driving Spotify to choose this method? I mean, there's been so many different ways of trying to bypass the traditional underwriting process over the years. But you know, Spotify is coming out with another one. What's the deal? Yes, so um, Spotify, as I'm sure all of our listeners will know, is the the music um, streaming platform um, where you pay a monthly fee and you get access to this enormous library of songs. And their slightly unconventional IPO is is quite particular to their business in in many senses. I mean, first of all, they're not in need of cash. They don't need any new any new money to fund their operations, even though they're loss making. Um, they raised about a billion dollars in 2016 in convertible debt, um, and they've also recently got a bit of a cash infusion from this share swap with Tencent. Um, and also, they're 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 not especially um, in need of the kind of typical uh, book building process in an underwriting of an IPO where you pay a, a bank to to or a series of banks to sort of allocate big blocks of shares to to investors. Um, so for those reasons, what they've decided to do is something called a direct listing, where in, I mean, the kind of the simple way to put it is that essentially you're not listed one day and then your shares just start trading on the stock exchange the next day. And there's no sort of formal process where a one fixed price is set by the banks and they commit analysts to write research and then they get to allocate the shares onto their favoured clients. You'll kind of skip all of that. Okay, so why why is it that Spotify doesn't need that, as you said? I mean, why not? The reason they don't need it is that they don't need the money, first of all. So they're quite no, happy I get to that, just I get give that, liquidity to. Yeah, I get. I get they don't investors. need the money, but what? 
what I mean is, why, why is it they don't need to have a, a price set by the banks? I mean, what the whole idea of setting a price for the banks is that the the the, the the shares don't go up and down too much, that you get a, a degree of stabilisation. I mean, even if you don't want necessarily to raise money, you, st- you don't want your shares to be a joke in the market. Yeah, and actually Spotify is risky enough to where that you would think they would want some sort of stabilisation when they go out. True. I mean, you, you can argue it would be a bit of a kind of, you know, bad PR for them if the shares were extremely um, unstable in the weeks, you know, on the day of the IPO and the weeks after. But because they're not raising money, they're not necessarily, well, they're not going to leave any money on the table themselves by doing that. Um, And I think also the thinking from their side is probably that, hey, look, there have been a lot of conventional IPOs recently. If you looked at Blue Apron and Snap, where you did actually see a lot of kind of wild durations um, after the float. So it's not really clear that the traditional book building process was providing a lot of value there, really. I think that's what they'd say. Okay, so Liam, let's... Uh, assume here for a second that Spotify is going to go out like uh, any other public company has in the past. Let's say Snap. I think you you did some of the numbers on it. How much are investment banks losing by uh, Spotify not doing the traditional IPO? So I did a kind of rough back of the envelope calculation on this. Um, And if you assume that like Snap, um, Spotify might have raised about just under a fifth of their value um, through new funds, um, then that would have been about $3 billion or so. And then using mm-hmm. the same underwriting fee that Snap paid of about 2.5% or so, and it's worth noting that's a heavy discount to the kind of average in the US, which is about 7%. Um, okay. You would expect the bankers in that imaginary scenario to have shared about $80 million or so, was my finding. Now that's and what are what would they be getting for for the direct listings? And for the direct doing? listing, what the bankers who are advising on it, who is Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, and Allen and Co. Um, mm-hmm. The Wall Street Journal is reporting that they're going to get thirty million. So, so that's a huge discount. So thirty million versus eighty million there. Yeah. You know, in in a sense, you know, they they have to do less work for that. But the other side of it is that they don't necessarily get to do a lot of the the things that they usually get to do with an IPO where you can sort Which of allocate is, to your favored clients and then ah. use that to drum up future business. Okay, so so one, one thing that could be problematic because I mean, you mentioned that Spotify is sort of unusual and that they don't really need to raise the money, but there are a lot mm. of other uh, private companies sitting out there, Uber, for example, mm. Airbnb, that are you know expected to go through the pipeline as well. And they've been saying, that, hey, we don't really need the money. They've been kind of holding back because they've been able to raise it in the private market. If this goes well, do you think this is going to become the trend for maybe those uh, startups? I think it could do. I think, I think there's, a, there's, a, you know, there's a danger of overplaying this and saying, you know, everybody will directly list. And that's obviously not the case because a lot of companies need to raise capital. But there are a, quite a clear, obvious bunch of potential um, follow-ons from this. Uh, you, you mentioned some of them there. You know, you have Uber, you have Airbnb, Dropbox. These are mm-hmm. these are large, well-known companies that would be able to access cash in private markets um, at a cheap, at a, w- without paying the the fee that you would need to pay an underwriter. Um, even in a direct listing, you, you you can usually raise cash quite cheaply in private markets at the moment. Um, and and. You know, if it all goes to plan with Spotify, then there's no reason to think that they might not follow on. You know, the, the sort of broad background theme behind all of this is that 
these companies have really asset light business models. They're not sort of the, you know, great industrial giants that mm -hmm. the stock markets were were designed around that needed to raise huge amounts of capital in order to in order to invest in these physical physical projects. They're just you know they're technology platforms basically, and and a lot of the time you you just want to go public so that your early investors can sell out, um, and a direct listing suits that quite well. Well, imagine that. All right. Well, Liam, thank you so much for coming on the program and explaining this to us. No problem. Speak soon. That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank all our guests, Chris Bedor, Una Galani, and Liam Proud. And hats off to our producers, Andrew D'Antonio, Ryan Warner, and Freddie Joyner. Finally, our thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com and subscribe to the Viewsroom on iTunes. And don't forget to come back next week for another edition. <laughs>